bulletin. I encourage you to take it out. We're continuing our series in Old Testament characters. One of the most enjoyable experiences, enjoyable series I've done in a long time on all the things that God wants to teach us and stories that have been written thousands of years ago, but I think are still as applicable today as when they were written. For the last couple of weeks, we've stopped on David and will continue to stay there up until Thanksgiving weekend. I think he's one of the most fascinating characters in all the Old Testament. So many bad things about David's life, obviously you heard last Sunday morning, and so many incredible things about David's life. He's one of those ones that stand as a model for all the things that we should do and some of the things we shouldn't do. And when I realized we were in this series, I wanted to spend some time just talking about him, his life, preparation to be king, and what it was like to be king. I have a question I want to ask you. I want you to be really honest with me this morning. But the question is this, how many of you have someone in your life that's a little bit hard to get along with? Okay, the rest of you are not telling the truth. Every single one of us has somebody in our life that's a little bit hard to get along with, right? How many of you are sitting by that person? No, don't. (laughs) How many of you work with that person? No, don't raise your hand. All of us at some point or the other have somebody that's a little bit hard to get along with, somebody that may not like us. I'm glad you're sitting down for this. You're sitting down, right? I'm glad you're sitting down. You're never going to believe this, but there are people who don't like me. I knew you'd be surprised. I understand why they don't like some of you, but me? I had a neighbor who couldn't stand me at one point. I mean, I kept most of the leaves in my yard, didn't blow them all to his yard. No. I called that guy the other day, and I said, what were you doing? He said, I was blowing the leaves into my neighbor's yard. I'm going, well, I'm sure that's going to be a great relationship afterwards. In all years of ministry, and every pastor that I've ever known has had one or two board members that were hard to get along with, that for whatever reason didn't like them. Now, I understand when Paul said to those in Ephesians, look, if God's called you into leadership, that's a good thing. And for most of my years of ministry, or all of my years of ministry, most of the people that I've dealt with have been called by God into leadership, and it's been an enjoyable experience. But every once in a while, one of them want to get into leadership just to keep an eye on me, or just to make sure I do it right. And sometimes there's been a little bit of tension in all of those years of ministry with a particular board member who you know is just out to get you. And for whatever reason, for as nice and loving and as fun as I am, this doesn't like me. I got to believe all of us have somebody in our life just a little hard to get along with. Somebody who doesn't like you, you try to live a godly life. You're here in church this morning. Now, I don't make the assumption that every single one of you, just because you're in a church, are an adamant follower of Christ. You're maybe trying to figure out what that looks like. You want to be a follower of Jesus, you're trying to understand what that is, and many of you in the room, maybe all of you in the room, are really adamant followers of Christ. You want to live out godly principles. But living it out in your world is hard. Not everybody understands. What you were and what you are now, maybe you've been there for a long period of time and you weren't a follower of Christ, did a lot of things, and everybody went along with it, and everybody loved you because you got blasted on the weekend or whatever the list may be, and now all of a sudden you've changed and they don't like it. And they don't know what to do with you, and they treat you differently than before. Or maybe you've had somebody come to you, don't you ever pray again about me. Don't you ever tell me again that you're praying for me. Don't talk to me about Jesus. I don't want to see you bring your Bible. I don't want to see you praying at work. 
We don't talk politics. We don't talk religion. Now, maybe nobody has had that experience, but God, I believe every once in a while, when you're trying to live out biblical principles in your life, not everybody's going to say, that's awesome. Not going to respond well, not going to like it. Maybe it's somebody that you admired, somebody that you respected, somebody that you even looked up to, that all of a sudden, somewhere along the way, for whatever reason, has taken a horrible turn. And now they're treating you like the enemy when you're just trying to be Jesus to them. David experienced that. The story is in 1 Samuel 18 to 24. Now, I'm not going to read all four chapters this morning. We're going to look at bits and pieces of that. If you know anything about David, 1 Samuel is his preparation to be the king. 2 Samuel is the story when he is king. Bob shared a phenomenal message last Sunday morning about that experience in 2 Samuel when he was king. One of the most difficult things David had to deal with in his preparation to be king was the previous king, Saul. There's a story in 1 Samuel about David and Goliath, one of the most familiar. If you know anything about David, everybody knows the story of David and Goliath. We've all had Goliaths in our lives, those things that are so huge, so large, we never know how we're going to get beyond them. We never know what we're going to do with them. We'll never be able to conquer them, but we're willing to trust God in the midst of it. We've seen what God has done. We're willing to take on the challenges, and then we see God do some amazing things. David did not go down to see how the battle was going with the Philistines, assuming he would be the one to take on Goliath. He just thought, I'm a kid. How many of you are guys in the room that loved war movies? Loved playing soldier. Loved talking about playing a soldier. Man, we had guns and weapons. We had forts. We, I built forts. We would shoot every Indian under the sun from the forts. We would do all kinds of things. We had every battle that you can imagine. We all did that as growing up. David is just an ordinary kid out in the field. I grew up as a farmer. Being out in the field, somebody said, hey, there's a battle going on. Where do you think I'm going to go? I'm going watch. And so he goes. He's assuming this is going to be awesome, man. I see the Philistines on this side, the Israelites on this side, battle with one another, all the arrows and all the weapons and all the swords and everything you see in Braveheart and the endless movies that I'm sure all of us have seen the old days before guns and those kinds of weapons. And he gets there and nobody's fighting. Got one big guy, nine foot six, down the middle yelling. Has to even get closer to find out what he's yelling. And basically, he's confronting them saying, you send that one, I'll be the other one. We'll take each other on. Nobody else has to die but you, that guy that you send down, and we'll be done for the day. That is a pretty good deal, to be honest with you. I wish most battles were like that. Everybody sits silent. Nobody goes. David goes to his brother and said, hey, aren't you going down? Looks at David, are you nuts? You not see how big that guy is? And the story goes on. David finally says, I'll go. Everybody laughs at him. Saul said, take my armor. You ever know what it's like to try to be something you're not? Saul tried to make David Saul. Didn't work. David goes out in his own garb, sling and a stone. I still have one in my office from being in Israel. It's one of the most fascinating things I ever brought home. And takes on Goliath. Not because of himself, not because of his abilities, although he's pretty good at wielding that thing. But because he had seen God do some amazing things and he trusted him now. Goliath comes crashing down. Everybody thinks, awesome story. Way to go Saul. Way to go David. And David walks back. Goes back to the sheep. 
Everybody returns in 1 Samuel 18. That's where you are this morning. And they're singing songs. They're praising God. Man, they got the band, the orchestra, the timbals and the cymbals and everything else you can imagine. Somebody said, what happened to the old days when we had just organ and piano? Not even biblical. And in the Bible, it was all kinds of instruments. When they were praising God for what he had done, every instrument under the sun was brought out. And so they praised God with everything they had. They're singing, they're dancing, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 6. They come out from every town to meet Saul, and they're dancing, they're singing. Saul has slain his thousands, and Saul's going, you bet. That was me. And then all of a sudden, he hears this phrase, and David is tens of thousands. And everything at that moment changed. Saul became angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They credited David with tens of thousands. The funny thing is, David got one. They credited David with tens of thousands. He thought, and me only a thousand. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that moment on, he kept a close eye on David. Fascinating how we look at circumstances and situations for our own insecurities. Fascinating how we look at people and circumstances and situations through our own insecurities. And it's incredibly sad to see what jealousy someone else's achievements do to us. Instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, which Paul tells us to do in the New Testament, David does the best that he possibly can to serve the living God. Didn't ask for it, didn't desire it, didn't want to be king, didn't look to be king, didn't go around saying, I'm going to be king someday. No, he said, I'm just going to be a shepherd. God anoints him, God calls him, he just waits for God's timing. And Saul, who was so insecure with who he was in his relationship with God, saw somebody else who was better at what he did than him. I mean, let's be really honest. There's somebody in all of our lives who's better at doing what we do than us. Hundreds and hundreds of guys that are better at doing what I'm doing than I am. And to be honest with you, sometimes that intimidates me. And sometimes I wish I were that good or that eloquent or that good of a communicator. And then I have to stop and say, I, Father, help me to be the best I can be. And not let my own insecurities do what it did to Saul. Saul gets jealous. David has to run. Has to leave his friends, has to leave his family. Goes into an area of the Dead Sea with a lot of caves. Gets into one of those caves that's high on an edge so that he can look down and see the valley below him. He realizes now he's got a target on his chest. He's running as fast as he can to get out of the area and not come under Saul's purview or sight at any point. But he's got to watch because he knows now he's got to watch his back and his front. So he goes up on a high hill, gets back in a cave, and hides. you imagine what it was like for him to go through all those transitions from just being a simple shepherd to realize I've been an anointed king? I'm not desiring it, don't want it, but I know God's hands on me, so I'm going to do my best to serve him. And, and, and in this context here, I just simply want to use the gifts that God has given me, so I take, off Goliath, take on Goliath, and this is the price that I pay for being a godly individual. This is the price I pay for just serving God. Sitting up on a hill alone. His family and friends find out about us in chapter 22. They come and join him, and then this fascinating verse in verse 2, and I'll tell you why it's important in a minute. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him. And David became their commander. About 400 men were with them. 
all the uptight, upset, mad at life and government and people and leadership and all that stuff, come and join him. I remember somebody saying to me one time ago, I have no idea why all these negative people come around me and always telling me stuff. I'm going, seriously? Because you're one of the most negative people I've ever known. And you all gravitate together. That's a whole other sermon. All the discontents of society want to stand with David and protect him. Saul goes after him with an army of 3,000. Now, the fascinating thing about that, Saul has no idea that 400 guys just joined David. But he's figuring David's up there by himself. I'm going to get him. He takes 3,000 men after him. How insecure could he be? Misrepresented David to the whole nation. Goes after David in verse 1 of chapter 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, hey, David is in the desert of En Gedi. David, not a lot of followers, David. So Saul takes 3,000 able young men from Israel and sets out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Saul takes all of his army and goes after David. David is in a cave. Saul goes up, I love scripture, how honest it is. Saul goes up to relieve himself. Now, some of you have children who are going home to say, what you talk about in church today? Pastor Dane talked about going to the bathroom. I don't know how you're going to answer that. But I'm telling you, that's the fascinating part of the story. David is in the backside of a cave. Saul walks in, no port johns I don't know about you, but uh, when I'm traveling, I'm pretty selective as, as to the rest stops that I stop in. But then I have to remember, I grew up on a dairy farm with an outhouse. So I obviously shouldn't have been that selective. And by the way, it was a two-seater. I'm going, who idea, whose idea ever was that? It's taken me 60 years to figure that out. And still, I want to ask my dad, whose idea was that? Now, if you've ever gone from light to, I mean, really bright light into a dark cave, you know you can't see. But if you're in the dark cave, you know you can see because your eyes adjusted to the light. Your pupils began to expand, and you're able to see what's going around you. One of the things about our setup here, and I, I love our design and all that goes with that, but when those doors open up, all I see is halos. All I see is this bright light because of the windows going there. So people wave to me and say hi to me. I have no idea who they are. I know they're angelic because they have this halo around them, and I know they're godly because of that halo and the aura that is around them, but I can't see them at all. And... and Saul walks into this cave, and there's David in the backside, and his men say to him, David, now your chance. Get him. You ever heard that little negative voice sitting on your shoulder? Somebody who's mistreated you, misaligned you, misrepresented you, didn't say good things about you, and all of a sudden, they're now a vulnerable position, and it's your chance to get him back. And you hear that little voice in your ear that says, get him. Fascinating thing about this story is the fact that David had been saying, David is a poet. He's a shepherd. He's a warrior. He's a fighter. He will be a king. He's also a poet and a musician. And and one of the things that, that you love about poets and musicians is they express their hearts in really wonderful ways. I know Jonathan, my son in law, is a musician, but he also is a songwriter. And listening to the words of a songwriter or a singer They're really expressing their heart. And David had been doing that. If you read the Psalms, you'll notice that it says on some occasions written when he was in a cave. Not necessarily this one, but David had been saying all along, God, why? I mean, deliver me from my enemies. 
Deliver me from my enemies. Uh, and, and I've heard you say, God, I'll give you your enemy. I'll, I'll drive them out. I'll deal with them as you wish. And so David had been saying that all along. And now these guys think based on the circumstances, that's what David prayed for now has come true. And so they said, David, get him. David gives into that for a moment, sneaks up behind Saul and cuts off the edge of his robe. And Saul can't see it, doesn't know that it's going on. Two things about that. It's in your sermon notes this morning. Be very careful how you evaluate circumstances and be very careful at times who you listen to for advice. When you're in those tough times of trying to figure out what to do or how to respond to a person that doesn't like you or a situation that's not going well or something that you're just trying to deal with, be very careful how you evaluate circumstances and be very cautious as to who you listen to for advice. There are a lot of people in life that I've heard when they're evaluating the circumstances around them or making decisions about life that say, well, all the doors opened up, I just walked through. And they may have all opened up, and that may be God's leading, and that's awesome. But don't always evaluate, this is where I went because all the doors were opened up, as if that's God's leading or that's God's direction. Be very careful that you listen to his voice, because sometimes all the doors open up because that's just the way life unfolds. And sometimes all the doors open up because God's opened them. So just be careful that we're not always evaluating every situation by the fact that all the circumstances just laid out. And be very careful to who we listen to for advice. Think of who's giving the advice to David. All the discontents of society who now have the one guy who represents all the bad evil they've had to deal with. And they're saying, David, go get him. Now, if you're in a situation where you're trying to figure out what to do, I encourage you to seek wise counsel. Scripture says that over and over again. Just be careful where you receive it from. Most of the people who are going down the wrong path, they do go to a lot of people trying to find advice. They're really looking for someone who agrees with a bad decision they've already made. See, everybody agreed. A bad decision that you're making and everybody agreed. Do you not find an unusual problem with that? And when somebody disagrees or confronts them or is honest with them and says, look, you're going down a path that's going to lead you to the wrong place. Well, they just weren't my friends. They just weren't my friends. They, they didn't understand how tough it is, how difficult it is. Be very careful when people are giving you advice through their own grid, through their own baggage, and through their own problems. David found that out to be true. He wanted to respond to Paul or to Saul in a godly, biblical way. Remember, he's a man after God's own heart. Two weeks ago, we looked at his spirituality, his humility, and his character or integrity. And so how does he do that, and what do we learn? Five, four or five things that I want to share with you in the notes this morning. Number one, responding the way David did in love and grace isn't popular, and it's definitely not easy. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, he calls us sometimes to the hard path. Doing what David did and not taking the advantage of Saul, even though he cut off, and I'm going to show you in a minute how he regretted that, but not taking revenge like they thought he should certainly wasn't popular and it's not always easy. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, it is the way we need to respond. In a world who treated all of these people badly, they said, now is your chance. David, a man after God's own heart, had to see it from a different grid. 
had to recognize that just because they were saying this and just because they said that, I've got to be very, very careful. I honestly believe that God brought Saul into the cave that day, not so that David could destroy Saul. God brought Saul into the cave that day to see if David could trust God. And that's vastly different. I think God brought Saul into the cave that day to see if David had the ability to keep his hands off of solving it himself and trusting God to do the right thing. Sometimes giving into our own nature, the desire to do something, the desire to retaliate, the desire to respond, and the voice of other people isn't always the best advice. And out of all the responses, or out of all the circumstances, and out of all the advice we get, which I'm saying you need to, the one piece of advice and the one voice you want to hear louder than anybody else's voice is the voice of God's Holy Spirit telling you what to do and how to respond. David, man after God's own heart, was learning through this process to be very careful to always listen out of all the voices he's hearing to the voice of God. Genuine love helps us be able to see the pictures it really is. Number two, four things about David's view that I want to quickly point out. David, what I love about him, even in his youth, is able to see things from God's perspective. Over and over again, when he comes out of the cave and says, Saul, my Lord, my King, I, I didn't listen to the men. Why did you listen to them saying, David has been on harming you? This day, chapter 24, verse 10, you've been in my own eyes. You've seen how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave, and they urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I didn't lay my hand on the Lord's anointed. And he calls him Father and Lord's anointed and God. Even though Saul had changed for the worse, David had the ability to look beyond what Saul was now to what he was before, and I honestly think he had the ability to see his own propensity to sin. One of the most powerful verses in the New Testament is in Galatians 6.1, many times overlooked. It said, if you see a brother in sin, what we end up doing is shooting them, ostracizing them, throwing them away. Paul said, if you see a brother who is in sin or caught in sin, didn't confess it, he got caught. Well, if they confess, it's different. Nope. Who got caught in sin, you who are spiritual, restore gently and then be very careful that you yourself don't end up going down the same path. It's very easy to criticize when people fail who has such potential and fall so badly, except to remember sometimes, except for the grace of God, I could get down the same path. So I want to be careful I respond, which allowed David to respond, number two, in humility, to give others the benefit of the doubt. And this is the fourth one I need you to hear very clearly. It gave him the courage to confront face to face. If you've got to confront someone, now you're going to hear my disappreciation for different forms of media. For heaven's sakes, don't do it in a text. Be a man or a woman face-to-face. Don't in a text or on Facebook or tell your 67 friends how bad they are. Talk to them face-to-face. Now, David's going to find out that Paul confessed at that moment and realized not always going to happen with you when you do that. Face-to-face will probably be one of the hardest things you'll do. It is the hardest thing for me. Man, if somebody says to me, I got two choices from you. Have your teeth pulled without Novocaine or confront somebody. Which one am I doing? I'm going to the dentist, have my teeth pulled without Novocaine. I hate confrontation. But face-to-face is a definite best, and I love how David comes to him and said, look, what are you doing? 
Third thing in this point is not get defensive. I said it in the first service, so I might as well say it in the second. I've gone to boards on a number of occasions through the years of ministry, and I said to them, I want to be really honest with you. If you push me, if you tell me what I'm doing wrong, if you constantly are pointing that out, I'll be really honest with you. I'll get defensive, so keep pushing. And it's one of the things God works on me the most in those kinds of situations when I'm confronted is to not be defensive and listen. But it's one of the things that I love about David in this context is if you're going to show genuine love, you've got to learn to not be defensive and respond biblically and correctly. There's a cross-reference in your sermon notes, 1 Peter 2.23, that refers to Jesus being beaten and spit on and all the things that he had to endure before the cross. And then when Peter writes it, who saw it? I got to wonder what he wrote when he said, what he thought when he said, I watched all this go on and he never retaliated. He didn't retaliate. He, when he suffered, he made no threats and said he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And when Peter writes that, he saw it lived out. Not always easy. Believe me, it's not always easy. When I've been misunderstood or mistreated, I have a tendency to become defensive. I want to stand up for my own rights. I want the truth to come out. You know the truth is always going to come out, right? Not always. And David says, I I want to learn in this process to trust you even when the truth doesn't come out and they don't understand. It's easier said than to be done. But when we're wanting to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, it's a challenge that God gives us in those situations. There's a verse that's not in your sermon this morning. I want you to write it down that the Lord brought to my mind last night. It's in Romans 12, verse 18. Romans 12, 18. It says, if it's possible, which means what? It's not always possible. But if it's possible, as far as depends upon you, which means you do your best, he said, live at peace with everyone. If it's possible, not always possible, you do your best to live at peace. You realize the freedom that comes with that? I'm not worried as to how they respond. I did my best. I did my best to live at peace. I did my best to back off. I tried not to be defensive. I tried to be honest about the circumstances. How they respond, and if they still hate me, it's not my problem. There's an amazing amount of freedom in that verse. I don't have to carry the baggage of that anymore. I've done my best to live that way. One of my favorite war characters or historical characters is Abe Lincoln, probably for hundreds of us. It was just the model of grace in the midst of all the issues that he had to face. There's a story that I heard about a long time ago and then found out a couple of weeks ago again of what he considered one of his very best friends. After the election and the inauguration, this individual escorted Mrs. Lincoln to the ball so that she could then be with everyone else as Lincoln was already there. This individual, he said, became one of my very best friends who tried to get to North to understand the South and tried to get to South not to secede from the Union. Did his best to stick up for Lincoln every single circumstance. When he died, long before he ever saw what really unfolded and what took place, Lincoln had the flags drawn at half-mask. And they said he cried for a long period of time, saying he's one of the best friends I've ever had. 
It wasn't until I got to the end of the story when I realized the name of the man was Stephen A. Douglas, who was known more for the debate against Lincoln than his best friend of Lincoln, the Lincoln-Douglas debate. Now, imagine in your mind when you see all the political things that are going on right now between the Republicans and Democrats and all the candidates that are running to later have any of them say, he's going to be one of my best friends. Two things in closing this morning in your notes. Genuine love can be powerful, therefore it should be forgiving. Two things, two truths. Nothing passes or touches me that has not passed through the hands of my father. In other words, he knows where I'm at. He knows what I'm dealing with. He knows when I'm in the cave. He knows when I'm being mistreated. He knows when I'm being misaligned. He knows when statements are said about me that aren't true. The enemy can't do anything to me that God hasn't given him permission to do. To be honest with you, I don't always like that. I don't always like the arrangement. But I do understand it because the second point is this. Everything I go through or I endure in your notes is designed to make me better or a better person. You know what that means? Life is a training ground. And all of my experiences and all of my circumstances and all of my disappointments and everything I have to endure and the things that people say about me and the list is endless of all of that stuff, the difficult people that I have to deal with or go through life with, can be used if I allow them to refine me and make me better and allow me to be all that God designed me to be. Every one of us has somebody, even if you didn't raise your hand this morning, who doesn't like us, who's hard to get along with, who's difficult to deal with. Most of the time, to be honest with you, it's family. (laughs) In my case, the church family. But in many cases, for most of us, it's family. I said to somebody yesterday, remember that old novel we all had to read in high school? It was a Tale of Two Cities that was best of times and worst of times. Is that the book, The Tale of Two Cities? Any of you were in high school? Did you all graduate? A long time ago, yeah, I know. In, in all of my years of, of ministry, I've seen that lived out in funerals and weddings. Best of times and worst of times and some of the highlights of people's lives. I'm going to ask you to, in in a moment, think about that one person or situation that's the hardest for you to deal with. And I've got to believe that almost in an instant, a face is going to come to our mind, that person or that situation. Most of the time, it's a person, not always a situation. And I'm going to ask you to just lay it before God. You and I, who decided to follow Jesus and become followers of Christ, want to live him out in every situation and circumstances. And one of the best ways to live it out is not when everything goes well. One of the best ways to live it out is when life's tough. And people don't respond to us well. And God wants to use that to refine me and make me a man or a woman after God's own heart. So when you close your eyes, imagine that person Ask God to help you figure out what to do, how to respond, where to go with it. And then listen clearly for his voice.
depending on the week, I spend 15, 10 to 15 hours in preparation for a sermon, 33 minutes in delivery. But the most important aspect of today could be those last 30 seconds you just spent listening to God. Don't ignore what he may have just said to you. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the power. Thank you for the lessons. <laughs> I'll never get over how applicable all of this information is. Not just stories to be told and shared and rehearsed, but life and the lessons that you want to teach us to be all that you've designed us to be. So thank you for preserving these stories. Thank you for your word and the power that it has. It's not just contains the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God, and we want to apply it and learn from it. So help us to do that as we follow you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Next Sunday morning is a sermon titled Oasis in the Desert. I think that's what it's going to be entitled. It talks about genuine friendship, and I want to use David and Jonathan as a great model of what to look for. If you've got somebody that's dating somebody serious or pretty serious, be a great, even though it may not make sense to you at the moment, it will next Sunday morning to say, hey, why don't you come along with me next Sunday morning? I think we're going to talk about relationships and maybe what you'll hear is some good insights as to what to look for. If you've got a son or a daughter that's about to get married or at least dating somebody serious, you're definitely going to want them to come. God bless you. See you then.